Behold the darkly whimsical world and wholesome family adventures of the Wingfeather Saga. It's a four-book series. It's a growing collection of newer titles, too, including today's newly released book. And of course, it's an animated series on the Angel Studio streaming service. Explore the mysterious lands of Air We Are with its many creatures to be fought, tamed, or trusted. Thanks to today's guest, singer, songwriter, and fantastical storyteller, Andrew Peterson. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the pros but about music podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm me, Steamer Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven and co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zach the Nameless, and this is episode 187, How Can Families Fight Through a Story's Dark Forest? I wish I'd said I was Zach the Nameless. Uh, that is a wonderful intro there. <laughs> uh, and this is a wonderful conversation I'm sure we're going to have with uh, Andrew Peterson. Uh, well-known, I'm sure, to uh, many of y'all, and not only as the storyteller behind the Wing Feather verse, but the singer-songwriter behind uh, so many songs that I can't even hum right now, because even though Andrew uh, provided us with a fantastic conversation, uh, I want you to go buy his music, you know? Uh, respect the artist, folks, and it definitely takes a person uniquely gifted to enjoy uh, the creation of both a fantastical uh, world for middle grade readers and up, uh, but also songs that are enjoyed uh, by folks of uh, all ages. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to having Andrew on today, Stephen, because his books are a huge hit with my older kids right now. They have read the whole Wingfeather saga, I think, a couple of times. Uh, we like his music. And what's fun is that in the television show, based on the books, there is music in that. So it's it's a really great blend of storytelling, art, and great storytelling through songs. Well, speaking of saga, that makes me think of Epic, which makes me think of our first sponsor, Oasis Family Media, which owns Enclave Publishing. And they have a new book coming out later this month, uh, the sequel to Of Fire and Ash. It is called Of Sea and Smoke by Jillian Bronte Adams. He rides a sea blood, a steed of salt and spray born to challenge the tides. Six years ago, the wrong brother survived, and nothing will ever convince Rafi Titrani otherwise. But he is done running from his past and from the truth. As civil war threatens Caridwin's tenuous rule in Soldonia, Rafi vows to fight the usurper sitting on the imperial throne of Nadar, even if it means shouldering his brother's responsibilities as the Empire's lost heir. Enclave Escape presents Of Sea and Smoke. This is the Fireborn Epic Book 2 by Gillian Bronte Adams, an exciting young adult adventure. It's on sale November 21st of this year, wherever great YA books are sold. It'll also be available as an audiobook on CD from Amazon or in digital format on Audible, Spotify, and through libraries everywhere. You can see that amazing cover and get all those purchase links in the show notes for episode 187. Or for the links to all of the sponsors for this episode, go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach, I hear a, a strange sounding engine in the background. I don't think it's uh, air we are technology, but it is our earth technology. So I'm going to open the barn doors and uh, see who needs to come in. Singer-storyteller Andrew Peterson has just entered the field on his orange Kubota tractor. He is an award-winning singer-songwriter and author of the Wingfeather Saga. He's also the founder of The Rabbit Room, an organization that fosters community through story, art, and music. Andrew and his wife Jamie have two sons, Aiden and Asher, and one daughter, Skye. They live in the Nashville, Tennessee area on a wooded hill in a little house they call the Warren where they are generally safe from bumpy dig toads and toothy cows. Andrew, it's a great to see you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. Well, you are maybe our first guest, Andrew, who comes in along with a bunch of tunes that get stuck in our heads, uh, not just at Christmas and Easter, uh, but you're well known to, uh, not only for being the Wingfeather Saga creator, uh, but also being a singer-songwriter. I am curious how you've managed to do both as we start off uh, chapter one here. Why has the Wingfeather franchise, in your view, flown so high? I've said on previous episodes that I think it's now kind of, frankly, I can say this, even if you can't <laughs> be humble, a Christian, it's the top Christian fantasy franchise right now that's new. Like, Why do you think this has met with uh, such success? Oh, man, I that is a good question. I don't honestly know, except that the fans have been very kind, and God has been very kind, and uh, I it's a dream come true. Yeah. We it's, and it's a long story too. I, it's funny. My daughter got married this weekend. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. And, Congratulations. Yeah, and thank you. Thank you. She was the third, third wedding and final wedding, Lord willing. And, uh, I, 
was in charge of going through old pictures for the slideshow, you know, at the wedding they do the, or at the re- rehearsal dinner, we do this. Slide. So I, I spent a weepy four hours sitting in front of my computer, going back through 20, uh, she's 21. So 21 years of photo- photographs. And it was, I was kind of like surprised when I saw these little baby pictures of Sky who's getting married. And I also saw the first sketches of the maps of the wing feather saga and, um, and it kind of saved in my iPhotos, you know, there were the maps and little sketches of toothy cows and, and whatever. So the, the thing was brewing that long ago, you know? And so it's been a long journey. It's something that I never, the fact that, you know, the books didn't come out and then kind of, okay, that's done now and we'll move on. The fact that they keep finding new readers and new audiences is amazing. And the other cool thing is that, you know, now people are coming up to me who read them as children who mm-hmm. are now reading them to their children. And uh, and that's a total dream to be a part of a family's story like that. So uh, I don't know, man. I I know other people who are writing fantasy who who are Christians. And and yeah, I'm not I don't think my books are better than their books or anything. I'm just really thankful that they've lasted as long as they have. Yeah, I I think it helps, too, that your books have songs in them. And so uh, tell us a little bit about that, about writing the uh, the songs that you find in the books. Well, you know, the, the, it's funny. Uh, one of the things I love about Lord of the Rings is that there are all these great long poems and songs yeah. that show up in them. And, uh, you know, m- when I was working on the story, sitting at the coffee house all those years ago, I kind of wanted there, you know, I tried to do enough world building to make the it feel like this was a world where there were old songs. And, you know, so it was it was kind of just a fun low pressure experiment to just write a goofy little poem that I could call a song or whatever. But then after, as the books came out, people were asking me, when are you going to record those? And it's like, well, I'm not going to do that. That that feels like it would be super hokey to <laughs> put out an album of fa- nerdy fantasy songs or whatever. But then <laughs> at some point when we were doing the, um, the fourth and final book, um, there was a big Kickstarter campaign to kind of like do a, a version of the book that was you know, hardback and had all these illustrations. And one of the stretch goals that I never thought we would actually meet was that I would record one of the songs. And then we met the stretch goal and I was like, oh boy, I gotta, I gotta write music to one of these things now. And that became My Love Has Gone Across the Sea, uh, which like, you know, you can never dream that stuff like this would happen. But then Jody Benson, who is the little mermaid, it plays the mom in the TV show. And she ends up singing "My Love Has Gone Across the Sea." Oh, so thanks it's for the just, spoiler. Okay, I haven't yeah. gotten to that episode yet, so well, now I have something you, to look you forward will. to. It's it's <laughs> pretty amazing. Uh, and so it, I don't know. It's just been uh, it's been an amazing journey. And and now you know I've now that there's a TV show, you can't have a song that is just you have to have music to it. So I, I now that the team are looking at me, going, "Hey, so where's the music for this one?" And I, it's like, oh, I guess I got to figure out how to make that sound not lame anyway yeah that's just been a fun way to to kind of ex- scratch both itches you know so andrew a moment ago you were talking about going back over old uh, pictures and records of coming up with the world of air we are uh and you said you were getting weepy listening to music now sometimes andrew when i get weepy i listen to andrew peterson music so i want to know just exactly what it is you listen to when you get weepy but also i'm curious which images like you know lewis said of course that he was dreaming a lot about lions but also had this starter image uh before the role of the creator and the role of the man that came in uh there was a bubbling of images i'm curious did you have any particular picture or maybe even a song in your case uh, that gave birth uh, to this fantasy world? You know, I don't remember having any like really strong images that inspired the story. Like I, I know that I had, you know, when you're writing your first book, it just feels like this impossible thing. Like how in the world do you, do, do you do it? Yeah. You know, like people are always wanting to know. And I wanted to know too, do you outline the thing? How much of the ending do you need to know when you start and all that stuff? And for me, I kept getting stuck in the first few chapters. Uh, you know, you have these rough characters that you don't really know yet. And uh, I kept getting stuck because I didn't know the world. And so, uh, you know, the example I usually use is that that the main character was going to buy something. And I realized I didn't know what kind of money you, existed in this world. Like, do they use coins or jewels or is it uh, how does it work? You know, and if it is coins, what does that say about the the level of technology that they have? Do they have a mint? You know? Uh, do they know what gunpowder is? And if they do, 
Yeah, I remember uh, one of my characters struck a match and one of my friends who's an author was reading an early draft. And he was like, oh, so does that mean they have gunpowder? And if so, do they have guns? Do they have cannons? And I was like, oh, no, no, but they do have matches. You know, <laughs> Not, nobody's thought of that yet. So it, it's just <laughs> so for me, it wasn't like a specific image. It was stopping when I realized that the story didn't work until there was a, a map. And so beginning with a map, basically pretending like you're 10 years old again and sitting down with your sketchbook and and letting your imagination go crazy and the story grew out of the out of the map Mm -hmm. there is something about maps and world building i mean i just love any scene in a movie right where they clear off a table they're like and they spread out a big map oh yes they're like oh you're like oh let's go something awesome is going to happen now either that or something terrible because they're plotting (laughs) world domination it occurs to me this may not be an exact parallel but it occurs to me that in genesis 1 god's world building starts not with the land but he gets to the land pretty early uh, in uh, day three, uh, let the uh, waters be separated and let the dry land appear. So God himself, as the original world builder, needs a map uh, before he gets started. So there's maybe exactly. something to that. There may there's be something definitely to something that. to that. Yeah. Yes. Like if, if God, the author of the cosmos, decides he wants to tell a story, quote unquote, with th- that will demonstrate the nature of his heart. Right. He's going to start with time and space and mm-hmm. land and sea and and of course, humans grow out of the out of the soil, quite literally, <laughs> um, and uh, of the, of that world. And so, I had several moments in the in the writing of the story where you get these little insights as a sub creator, as a little creator with a small c, of what what God the Creator is like. And I think storytelling is a way of knowing Him that you can't really. You, there are things that you'll learn about Him that you can't learn in any other way. Mm-hmm. So back in March 2008, I believe, was the original publication of book one of the Wingfeather Saga, On the Edge of the Dark Sea of Darkness. And then from 2009 to 2011, we had North Orbe Eaton, my favorite title, by the way, and The Monster in the Hollows. And then, by the way, Andrew, uh, sometimes I forget this, and maybe you did too, but way back in uh, July of 2011, our predecessor website, Speculative Faith, had a guest article from you called Please Stop Writing Fantasy Novels which is a little bit of a clickbait headline there. I think it was uh, one of our writers back then, Rachel Starr Thompson, uh, who managed to arrange that. And it's a good piece. Uh, we will link that in the show notes uh, because you were talking some about you know, some of your dislike of some fantasy, not all, just maybe some of the stuff you grew up with. And I recognize some of the themes you went back over in your nonfiction book, Adorning the Dark. But then you said, then why in air we are? Am I writing the Wingfeather saga? So you want the answer to that faithful uh, listener, uh, go read that article. We'll link that in the show notes. And then there were some ups and downs, as I saw, even from a distance uh, with uh, the publications, like the books needed to find a home. In 2014, y'all finally came out with The Warden and The Wolf King. And then by 2016, it was Keith Lango and some others who were going around raising funds for the animated series. And then the experimental short film uh, released in late 2017. What were some of the uh, the creative fangs you experienced along the way? You know, there's some <laughs> monsters in the forest trying to get any story started, but particularly with fantasy, you know, there's some different Christian ideas about fantasy and for whom it's best for, even if you think it's okay, maybe you think, oh, it's just something for the kids, or maybe you think, oh, it's, it's okay if it's old fantasy, you know, if it's safe fantasy like Narnia. Of course, we'd say it's not safe, but it's good. Uh, what were some of the uh, difficulties you had uh, getting through this creative uh, dark forest yourself? Well, I mean, there's the first and foremost, just the difficulty that it always is when you make something, uh, the, you know, the creative process is fraught with, you know, self-doubt and, uh, you know, the feeling of futility, <laughs> uh, writer's block. There's all the, all these things come with the, just the making of the thing. But then, you know, once the thing is made, you're then like, okay, well, how do I share this with people? And I had this amazing advantage that a lot of authors don't have, which is that I ha- already had a music career. so. I was able, I had a, a platform which gave the publisher, you know, reason enough to take a risk on a first time author uh, because at least he'll sell books at his shows. You know what I mean? Uh, and so that was, that was a huge uh, advantage uh, that I don't take lightly. There, it was a whole thing. It was just my music career is kind of the same uh, where, you know, I didn't want to sell out. I didn't want to just make stuff that would sell for that sake. But at the same time, I had a pretty strong sense that. I wanted people to know about this stuff, you know, like, so I, I wasn't trying to be avant-garde at all. I was just trying, I was writing something that I hoped would have a broad appeal. Um, but then convincing 
publishers um, to get behind it was was it wasn't super easy. I, they they were very generous in, uh, by giving me a shot. But you know, the first book deal was uh, only a two book deal. I think that was just because they wanted to kind of see how that was going to go, and um, the books did okay. But they restructured, you know, and decided to focus less on fantasy. It was a Christian um, publishing house, and so so I was kind of like sitting there going, okay, well. The, the story's not over. I got to write books three and four, but there was, but they weren't willing to sell me books one and two or release the rights back to me because they were still selling well enough. So I was in this weird position of having, you know, uh, a publisher owned the first two books and I couldn't find another publisher that was willing to, to own half of a series. It was an impossible situation. So the nice thing was, um, the rabbit room, this, this ministry that I founded many years ago, um, we had a, a we, published books. Uh, my brother is heads up the press and he's a novelist and, and we'd already put out a few books and, and, um, had a real high, um, aesthetic, you know, wanted to make the books beautiful. And so I was like, well, a- a- after I just ran out of steam trying to find a publisher, I was like, well, we'll just publish them independently through the rabbit room, which was the best possible outcome. It was wonderful. <laughs> like not only financially was it good because it was like, okay, well now I'm not having to, it's not a traditional publisher that is taking a big cut, but it w- it allowed us to really like tailor the books and make them what we wanted them to be and, and publish them the way that what we wanted. So then I had the most gratifying experience later after book four had come out and did well, the original publisher had then become kind of a, a subsidiary of Penguin Random House, big, big New York house, you know? And they were like, hey, um, can we buy books three and four from you? <laughs> and it was just like a dream to get to go, oh, great. I got to go do the thing. And now they're going to give it a, a brand new push. Um, and so that was a, a huge surprise. And then the, the, you asked about fangs. You know, the COVID was the next fang. Oh, of course. Came, so the, literally the, the re-release of these books with new covers and kind of this big thing was March of 2020. And I thought. Oh man, seriously, <laughs> like all of the marketing work and the books are going to get swallowed by this terrible thing. But the, once again, there was this surprise, which was that I, I decided, well, we're all on lockdown. I'm just going to read the stories on Facebook live. And uh, that connected me with a whole bunch of families who were stuck at home with their kids who wanted something. So every night at seven o'clock, I would read for 30 or 40 minutes. And, uh, and that ended up making the book, putting it on the radar of a whole bunch of families. Concurrently, we were trying to figure out, find partners to help us make this animated series and just hitting dead end after dead end and couldn't, couldn't seem to do it. And we were on the verge of giving up in March of 2020. And that's when Angel Studios, they saw the, the success of the re-releases thanks to the Facebook thing. So, I, you know, I feel nothing but gratitude. Like, it just feels like all of these things were, were surprises along the way. The, the only thing... And I think this is true as a Christian too, that like we, we don't get to have any say over the outcomes of things. Uh, the only thing that we're really in charge of is our own obedience. You know, things don't always make sense and you go, well, this is what the Lord has called me to do and I'm just going to keep doing it even if it doesn't make sense. And, um, and I think that in my own faltering way, that's what I did with these stories. I just was like, well, I got dropped from my publisher. I'm just going to keep writing the books, you know. Uh, well, COVID happened. I'm just going to keep sharing these stories, and I think that that's that's um, you know just like a dog that won't let go of a bone. You just keep doing the thing that you're called to do, um, and sometimes it doesn't always work out like this, but sometimes it does end up having a pretty obvious back end, you know, where you go, oh, that it looks like that paid off. I'm glad I stuck with it. Now, I want to ask you something about that, about why you couldn't let go of this, like you said, like a dog. I seem to remember reading an article from you years ago uh, where you talked about growing up reading Dragonlance. Does that sound right? Yeah. Like, like, like middle school? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the series yeah. to which I alluded earlier. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. that's uh, that's about the same time I discovered Dragonlance and then I got into uh, Tolkien and a Wheel of Time, a bunch of other things. But Dragonlance was really that first fantasy series. At some point I, I grew out of it and I'm like, I don't want these books anymore. I seem to remember you talking in a, about a similar process you went through as, as a believer of saying, well, I really enjoyed these, but maybe I shouldn't. Like, I almost feel guilty. So can you talk ab- about that, about how you enjoyed it, but then couldn't enjoy it? But, but now you're like, you're chasing this thing. Like you can't let go of it. 
Yeah, man, I love that you remember the Dragonlance. I actually have my copy sitting on the shelf right oh. next to you. Oh, cool. so they didn't go out into the burn pile in the backyard. Oh, no. It wasn't that bad. Okay, excellent. No, I no, still appreciate that. those. <laughs> no, I, I did not have a book burning. Um, no, I, I loved them. And they're the same, the same beat up paperbacks that mm. used to make my stomach flutter when I saw them on the, on the shelf at B. Dalton Booksellers in the mall or, or Walden Books. Remember Walden Books? Yeah. And, you know, growing up in the 80s as a pastor's kid, there was something about this feeling of like contraband. It's like this, mm-hmm. this stuff is stuff that my parents are really 90s kids up. had the Harry Potter books. You yeah, were yeah doing totally. it before that was cool. And what's so funny is that like my pastor was the dungeon master for like the church D&D group, <laughs> which like, now it's kind of everyone's like, OK, this is actually not not a, not as terrible as everybody said it was. But anyway, yeah, I just I was I had this insatiable hunger for a certain kind of story. And those stories usually featured dragons and maps, like you said, and high adventure. And and so I think what happened with me was that I just, I lost my taste for it because I don't know, I, I began to care a little more about prose, I, about like the quality of a sentence, which led me to uh, just reading better books, Wendell Berry and Marilyn Robinson and Frederick Buechner. And I mean, Tolkien is kind of the, the, top of the heap when it comes to fantasy because it was high fantasy adventure dragons but also really great prose right he was he was a writer and and i think lewis was the same um but it was it was weird because for me you know encountering jesus when i was 18 or 19 years old really not like changing from being a nominal cultural christian to someone who had collided with the truth that jesus was real and that that um that he loved me was a game-changing experience for me. And so rereading the Narnia books for the first time as an adult when I was in Bible college after having read them as a kid and and seeing, oh my goodness, there's so much truth and light in these stories. It kind of like reawakened my love for these kinds of stories in a way that nothing else really could have. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so so coming back around, you know, and I've gone back and flipped through the Dragonlance books and and I still feel that same flutter in my stomach but i don't love like uh, you know the stories did what they were meant to do mm-hmm. you know it, and the way i think i described it in that essay uh in adorning the dark was that they were it was kind of like the stories weren't super nourishing but then they they did get thrown on the compost right and and all that stuff in my imagination was composting and turning and god was turning it into something richer so that when you know the seeds of the gospel went in i i i experienced the gospel story with the mind of someone who loved adventure and loved the idea of light conquering darkness and sacrificial love. And so you get hints of those in a lot of fantasy novels, uh, but they are most distilled in scripture itself. And so uh, then having that realization and then sitting down to go, I want to write, you know, the story that I, I wanted to read when I was 10 years old with the knowledge that th- these things are true with a capital T. Um, it was a whole different thing. I really appreciate that perspective, especially about stories that in God's providence, he is used to help us, even if the writing or, or the, you know, the songs or stories, even if the writing is not awesome, even if it's just functional. Uh, that's something that I've noticed in, in your stories and songs, Andrew, is it works, but there's also an ornateness there, kind of a, a simple ornateness, as it were. Maybe you'd have other words to describe your style. It's very accessible. Uh, and that's why I think uh, your music and your books have, have spread so widely. And yet there is a depth there. I think there there is some creative depth that will also stand the test of time and won't be a memory of like, well, you know, guy used those wing feather books a long time ago. But no, I think that now, as you've said, generations will be passing these books down and they will become like, even though they're kind of new now, like imagine a few decades from now, I think they're still going to be around and hopefully they'll still be in print and hopefully have the same publisher as well. I'm really grateful that you stuck with it, even with all of the publication difficulties and all those other, all those other challenges that you all had. Of course, now there is also a, the uh, television series, The Wing Feather Saga, season one on Angel Studios. You can actually get that on the app, and then uh, actually on this podcast, uh, episode 146, uh, we had uh, CG artist uh, Keith Lango on the show to tell more of that story. So, faithful listener, you can go listen to that. Uh, the story about the story. Uh, even though Andrew Peterson uh, made the uh, made the story itself, 
I'm going to cut in here for just a moment for our second sponsor in today's episode. It is another fantastical author uh, writing for a very similar audience. It's Phyllis Wheeler, Adventure and Time Travel for Ages 8 to 11. Meet your award-winning family-friendly book series, Guardians of Time. Jake and Ava, age 11, search for their kidnapped dog now lost in time. They aren't alone. They have the help of a 700-year-old alchemist from the Guardians of Time Guild. Caleb, age 11, had this to say. Great story. Time traveling in a clock shop was interesting, cool, and funny. Stop by author Phyllis Wheeler's website for information and a special freebie, the prequel short story. That's phyllisweeler.com, P-H-Y-L-L-I-S, wheeler.com. Special deal, the ebook for book one, The Dog Snatcher, is now on sale for 99 cents at all outlets through December 12th as book two makes its debut. Get that link at our show notes for episode 187. Or once again, go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. All right, uh, back to our guest. So we've talked about the uh, the fangs of Dang or otherwise uh, that you confronted. Uh, let's go now to chapter two about the the story content of the books themselves. Uh, I'm interested, especially because we've just had another uh, Halloween or fall festival, whatever you call it, your church listener. Chapter two, how do the books show scary stuff versus God's light? So, Andrew, I got to tell you about a parent that I spoke with uh, who was interested in the Wingfeather Saga series. Uh, but occasionally uh, I unite with the folks at the Realm Makers Bookstore, which goes to homeschool conferences. And of course, Wingfeather Saga is a big seller at the booth. Like book one almost always sells out. Of course, it's the glorious new hardcover edition with the front covers that uh, whose art style resembles the animated show. Great, great um, synchronicity, by the way. Uh, and they're, they're big sellers there with Scott Miner's Realm Makers Bookstore. Well, I once had a parent ask me about it. And frankly, at the time, Andrew, confession, I, I had not read the series. All I knew was the reviews that I'd heard from friends and the reviews we've done at Lorehaven. And, and she expressed concern about the, the darkness in the book. I think she was not a big fan of your black carriage, uh, which <laughs> shows up earlier in book one than it does in the series. The series kind of gives you a little time to get used to the concept of children being abducted by night. So, you know, disclaimer, <laughs> that is in there, folks. You know, there is a threat to children in here, uh, just like Wizard of Oz uh, or, or Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh, and yet the darkness in the books, I would say, serves a point. Uh, it is almost like the point... Um, I forget who it is. Uh, maybe it's Neil Gaiman or G.K. Chesterton. It's been attributed and uh, the quote has been uh, passed around from author to author about how if you're going to say that there are dragons in the world, you may, well, uh, you may as well at least give people brave knights to slay the dragons. Parents, some parents may be concerned. Oh, these are kind of dark books. These are kind of scary books. But I would say that uh, a kind of fear, just a, a bit of fear in a story can be healthy, uh, at least for the general older child breeding audience for whom uh, the wing feather saga seems most intended. That's my take. But what is your take on your decision about showing some scary stuff versus the light of heroism and family relationships and bravery and courage? Well, you know, I, I loved to be scared when I was a kid. Uh, so I, 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 I know there are kids who really, you know, we, I have friends who, whose parents are kind of like, yeah, we're waiting until they get a little older before they read your books uh, or watch the show even. I, that's fine. I, I, no, no judgment on the parents that are, are trying to be careful. And we were, we were very careful with our children, uh, but we also kind of enjoyed the kind of ghostly shiver, you know, a story mm -hmm. that had a little bit of a shiver, some, some real danger in it. The quote that I thought you were going to say, I think the one that you, you mentioned was a version of a C.S. Lewis quote, the Chesterton quote, which Neil Gaiman, of course, commandeered and, and simplified was, you know, uh, children don't read stories to, to learn that dragons exist. They already there know that. Oh, that's right. Children's read stories to know that dragons can be beaten. So in, in the same way that I love to ride a roller coaster, because it's, you get the feeling of scariness, uh, but you're also strapped into the seat. I'm not going to get hurt here, but I, I do love the feeling of the thrill. And then when it's over, you're laughing. Not everybody loves roller coasters and that's totally fine. I happen to. So in the same sense, it's like a story is a safe context in which to experience scary stuff. And I think as a Christian, I was very conscious of the fact that I, I didn't want to glorify evil in any sense. I didn't want to just scare kids for the sake of scaring kids. Like, like it was very intentional uh, because I, in order to demonstrate that, that the light is stronger than the darkness, the darkness has to be strong, right? And the, and the fact is the darkness is strong. Right. Anybody who's watching the news right now knows that there is evil in the world, right? A story can 
can assure the reader that even though the darkness is really, really scary, that there is this great eucatastrophe. There's this sudden joyous turn coming where the author of the story flexes his muscles. Yeah. You know, um, that one of my favorite Rich Mullen songs, this is kind of stream of consciousness, uh, but one of my favorite Rich Mullen songs is called I, uh, 5210. It's on a liturgy, a legacy, and a ragamuffin band. And, and it's a very short song. He just takes a snippet of the scripture from Isaiah where he says, it says, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the Lord's salvation. That's the whole song. He just kind of repeats that again and again. But, but when you read that in Isaiah, the Lord has bared his holy arm. Like it really is a picture of the mighty God of the universe flexing his arm, showing you this is how strong I am. And so in that song, uh, um, all the ends of the earth will see the Lord's salvation. Well, what is the Lord's salvation? It's Christ. So Christ in his humility on the cross, taking our sin, conquering death at the resurrection, is God flexing his muscles, right? <laughs> and so, uh, so and the, the God, God is de- demonstrates his greatest strength at the moment where darkness seemed the very strongest, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like the crucifixion of Jesus arguably was the darkest moment in history, right? Um, not arguably it was. And, uh, and that is the moment where God flexes his muscles and shows us this is how strong my salvation is and all the, all the nations will see it. So in the same sense as a, as a storyteller, um, the darkness is, is kind of like an errand boy for the light. It's like, it is only there to, to demonstrate just how strong the goodness is. You know, the, the goal, my goal with, with these books, and I'm not going to spoil the ending was, you know, is to try to create a situation where the, the characters in the story cannot see a way out, right? They, they're like, we don't know what else to do right now. And you're creating in the reader the feeling of what are they going to do? There can't be a good ending to this story. And then you get to lift the curtain and show this amazing uh, ending that the author always had in mind, right? Um, the Lord of the Rings to me is the, the best version of that. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, the deep magic from before the dawn of time. Like, like these are the moments where we, we are reminded that the author of the story is, is fully present and is in, in full control of this whole situation. Um, so, so anyway, but, but in order to have that, it's like a math problem almost. You have to have this, this feeling of hopelessness or, uh, or smallness before the dark in front of this, this great problem in order to have that psychological, emotional relief of, oh, everything turned out, right? Um, and so, yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And, and I don't know, that some people, re- there's something to be said for books that are just like, you know, wholesome and edifying and, and just, you know, the problems are not dragons. The problems are, oh no, I forgot my homework. You know, mm-hmm. like, I'm not saying those are bad stories, but, but they're all kind of like versions of the same thing. We're all looking for that that feeling of relief. The way my friend puts it, uh, it's like the opening of a window through which the breezes of a far country blow. And so um, that moment happens, the opening of the window and the breezes of the far country blow in uh, right when they're needed. A wizard is never late. <laughs> so Yeah. Well, I, I, love, I love what you said about the darkness is just an errand boy for the light in order to show how much stronger the light is than the darkness. And I think that really is the dividing line with what makes a story ultimately point to Christ or away from Christ is if it shows darkness being beaten. Uh, and if, as long as it is, then I, I think it's okay. And again, it's like you said, as long as it's not glorifying the dark, um, a story I grew up on as a kid, a child of the eighties was the never ending story. Oh yeah. Uh, which oddly enough had sequels, but we won't go there. <laughs> but the the whole scene of the nothing and it's like this you know black panther yeah. kind of thing and man that scared the heck out of me as a kid Same. and you know when artex the horse you know drowns when there's the the laser beam statues there were so many scary parts of that <laughs> and like we we've watched it with our kids and i'm like man, should i be showing this to them because this is pretty traumatizing right but the, but that's not the end of the story and you know, a lot of my friends, my same age, we kind of joke like, oh, I survived the never ending story. Like, you know, we're, we're so traumatized, but 
But I think it did teach us something, which is that these things can be overcome. And that's also not the only part of the story either. It's there, there is the, the fun parts of the story. There's the luck dragon. And, and then there's where Bastion rides him at the end and chases the bullies away. There's the song that they sing, the, the theme song, which hilariously was, was re-sung in recent season of Stranger Things. And I was like, oh yeah, that song was so fun. We used to sing that as kids. And so I, I think you can have the darkness and, and fear as long as there's those counterbalance. And that's what I like about your books is that you've got the, the whimsy, you know, the, the whimsical moments. And, the, and it kind of softens that blow a little bit and says, hey, that this is not all there is to the world. And in fact, when I've, when I've heard my daughters tell their friends about the Wingfeather books, I've usually heard them say these two things together. Like, well, it's very whimsical, it's very dark, and it's really like exciting. <laughs> Good. That's great. Yeah, I, I would. When you said uh, you were traumatized by Never Ending Story, I I loved that. We're probably the same age um, yeah. because I mean, between Dragonlance and Never Ending Story, those are two big parts of my childhood. I watched that so much, and I was so unsettled by the nothing, like that that idea, yeah. and it's still unsettling, like that. Yeah. That idea of just not even, not even darkness, just nothingness is, mm-hmm. is a really scary thought. But I would argue that it, I would probably use the word, oh yeah, I was traumatized by the thing. When I think about it, I'm like, actually, I wasn't traumatized. Right. Uh, I was, it was therapy. Right. Right. <laughs> it was more therapeutic than it was trauma. Trauma is what happens in the real world. When there's no resolution. Yeah. Or, and, or when you're physically hurt or emotionally right. abused by someone or, right. or whatever that that's. And then when you can read a story where you see a character experience something similar. And at the end of that, there's this, there's this uh, healing that comes that that's actually therapy, not trauma. Yeah. Well, in, in, in that story, then nothing is beaten. And so, you know, I think about what that represents today in today's world. You know, kids these days are having to go through mass shooter drills, like at school. They're surrounded by peers that are getting swept up in these cults, frankly, these ideological cults. And then everyone is talking about the loneliness epidemic. And and so they're hearing this and thinking, am I going to grow up with and have no friends while while we're facing like global war? <laughs> like how how is this going to work? And but you go to a, a story where there's these really big, bad, honestly dark, evil monsters, but they get beaten. And that gives kids the courage to face these same kind of monsters in the real world. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm 40 years old, Andrew, and even I was pulling for uh, old Slarb uh, to get defeated <laughs> by the end. Uh, he, he, he was a jerk, and he's after the kids, and yeah, he's, he's just scum. Uh, the uh, the projection, by the way, of the fangs uh, cracks me up a little bit where they're talking about the humans as being snot nosed, you know, while they're wiping snot from their noses. Like, <laughs> yeah. it, it feels like it's saying a message or something, but it's just no, it's just like Zach said, it's a good, honest foe, uh, whether it's a fang or an orc or one of the creatures uh, that the white witch calls out that uh, C.S. Lewis won't describe, because if he did, the adults wouldn't let you read this book. Uh, by the way, I think that the mom I was talking about at the top of this chapter, I, if I remember right, I did manage to sell her a couple of wing feather books because hey. I love that in the series itself, you know, the, the mom of the, the family uh, and Podo, they're both working through some of these same questions. You know, there are monsters out there who are after the kids and one of them's got a grudge to settle. You know, do we let them go into town anyway? You know, what precautions do we take? And, you know, ultimately, at least by the end of book one, uh, there's some you know disaster happening, and there's some other uh, other uh, places that they have to go. Uh, but lots of parents, I think, are are working through these kinds of scenarios. And a, a fictional series, I think, can be uh, as useful and helpful uh, in helping to delight and you know scare just a little bit uh, the kids for the sake of delight, for the sake of that victory. But it's not just for the kids. I would say that the Wingfeather Saga is a family series. Uh, imagine the main yeah. audience is you know older kids. Uh, but it, it is a show and a book series that I think families can enjoy together. Man, that's actually, I'm glad you pointed that out. That's one of the the goals with the, with the animated series was, you know, there's stuff that the kids watch that, that the older, older teenagers don't want to have anything to do with, or the parents don't, they just kind of put it on and, and vice versa. But you know, there, there are some movies and they're rare where you think, oh, I can't wait to take my kids to see this because you're as excited as they are. And we wanted to make something that would, would would appeal to both um which again it, it i think the peril is part of that you know like 
you, you really start to care about these kids. Uh, we, I just watched, um, we're in season two now, and I last night watched the most current version of episode two. And man, it it is, I was on the, I knew what was going to happen. And I was on the edge of my seat watching this because you get, you become so invested in these characters. And so, uh, yeah, that, that's been one of the, probably the most gratifying thing about the whole wing feather deal was, is the parents and the, the older, you know, teenagers that are into it, college kids are into it. it that just makes me think, okay, we pulled it off. So speaking of building trust in families, one thing that you can do with that is join a guild, join a group of readers. And that's what Lorehaven offers. Uh, since our fans are spread out a bit, we have created a castle in the cloud called the Lorehaven Guild. That's our exclusive community on Discord that you can join by getting your exclusive invitation code. You just go to lorehaven.com slash subscribe, enter your email address. Uh, we keep it secret. We keep it safe. And you get that uh, code to portal into the guild on Discord, a curated community uh, for the best Christian fans exploring the best fantastical Christian-made stories. We just finished our uh, selection for October, a scary story called Koenig's Fire. But right now, it's not too late as you're uh, listening to this episode on release day, of course, uh, to join our new book quest for Fox. Uh, that's the historical fantasy by Nadine Brandis that features color magic in the days of Guy Fox. That's the one about whom it was said. Remember, remember the 5th of November, even if it's after November 5th, you can still join the Lorehaven Guild. Just go to lorehaven.com slash subscribe. So let's move to chapter three, and Andrew's already gone there. What's next for the Wingfeather saga stories? You just said that you had seen the most recent version of episode two of season two. And as of uh, today, the release date of this podcast episode, uh, you also have the newest book out, and we'll have to talk about that, A Ranger's Guide to Glipwood Forest. Uh, what led to the creation of this book, kind of a prequel uh, to the Wingfeather saga uh, series, uh, similar to the Pembroke's Creaturepedia, which is more about the monster manual prodigiously illustrated, but uh, we've reviewed A Ranger's Guide to Glipwood Forest. You can catch that at lorehaven.com. But what led to this project in particular, Andrew, before we ask you for some spoilers for the future? Yeah, uh, man, the it was so fun writing The Ranger's Guide. When you're writing a story, you kind of, like I said, you're trying to create the feeling of uh, that this world has its own history, you know, that it's been around for a while, which again, Tolkien was the, the master at that whole thing. Um, but the you know, there are mentions in the Wingfeather saga of rangers that used to tame the forests of Lipwood, uh, the creatures of Lipwood Forest and, you know, all these kind of little side notes. And now to have the publisher go, hey, we're going to try to uh, create a few extra books that'll that'll flush out some of these ideas has been just a total blast, partly because I'm not sitting here trying to think of an entire, you know, uh, intricate plot. I just get to like take a little snippet and go, oh, I wonder what it would have been like to be a, a ranger in Glipwood Forest a thousand years before uh, the events of, of, the, of the series itself. And so uh, I, I love footpaths in England. It's one of my things that I, it's, I'm a giant nerd about. I don't know if you guys have ever been there before, but it was a revelation to me. The first time I went to England, I was like, what, what's with all these little footpath signs you'll, you'll see just shooting off across a cornfield or a, a bunch of cows? And, you know, there are, I think, 140 some odd thousand miles of public footpaths that oh, just wow. crisscross the countryside. And so no matter where you are in England, you can just kind of strike out like a hobbit through the fields. You can't do that in Tennessee, like where I live. I, you know, we live in the country and there are farms, you know, a five minute walk from here that I will never, ever be able to see because I will be shot by the farmer. Right? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Uh, <laughs> Someone's going to be toting. <laughs> But over there, not only do they not have guns like we do, uh, but they they uh, there's this you know history of shared footpaths, you know, and oh. so you can you can wander. And one of my favorite things to do uh, when I'm there, you get these little footpath guides that will will lead you through the countryside and you, you tell you about the oh this this castle was this blah blah blah. You can read all the history of where you're going. So I thought, oh, I'm going to write a footpath guide for. For Glipwood Forest, and so uh, it's the the original Rangers Guild, uh, the Glipwood's original Rangers Guild, which the acronym is Gorg, and uh, and it's the history of the Gorg. Yeah, That's super awesome. fun. Oh. Yeah, so it's kind of like your Silmarillion then. For, yeah, uh, for <laughs> <Winter Soccer. laughs> yeah, it's about all I'm capable of as as far as the Silmarillion goes. 
I'll give you a spoiler from our review. Uh, fans of Peterson's typically humorous style will delight in the narration, footnotes, and nonsense words abounding in this uh, slim volume. Uh, look forward to opening that up myself. Uh, our volunteer reviewer, by the way, uh, he is a father of two young children, uh, and he wanted us to know and ask you about uh, the, the role of your kids, uh, who once were young enough to be in the target audience, and now two of them have helped expand the franchise. Uh, Aiden is illustrated Pembroke and Rangers guide and sky has recorded music for the short film. And he says he believes the series. So yeah, kind of a family yeah. business now where your own kids uh, <laughs> were once the, once the fans, and then they got to be the, the ultimate promoted fans and actually help oh, uh, draw some of these images. It is the greatest thing. Like Asher, my middle son, uh, is a drummer and a road manager and record producer. So I've been in the studio with all three of the kids making music. He, he's awesome. And, uh, Sky, of course, is a singer songwriter with her own records out now. Sky Peterson slash Anderson now, which I cannot get used to. Peterson uh, Anderson. Made, it's all yeah, she, okay. she married a guy with with uh, with a, a close enough name to her. I approve. Uh, but anyway, uh, and then Aiden, of course, grew up sketching this this stuff. So all the kids were deeply involved in the in the making of things. The fun thing too is that Aiden is one of the character designers and background artists for the the animated series too. Um, and his wife, he met in animation school and his wife is an incredible artist and they're both full-time employees of, of Shining Isle, which the nice thing is, uh, you know, I've, I have to be like way back from that hiring process. Uh, but they are most definitely, they have earned their own way into this thing and, uh, it's beautiful to see their work, but yeah, Aiden, his, it's so fun too, to see his art grow, you know, like he. He illustrated the first edition of Pembroke's Creaturepedia when he was 16 years old and then went to college. And when we re-released the books, he was like, could I have another whack at that now that I'm a few years older? And so he refined all the all the illustrations. And of course, I was like, will you please illustrate? The, like, I would be a massive fan of his drawings if I did not know who he was. I, I just think he is amazing. So his, his drawings add so much. Well, that is fantastic. And to the animated series as well. Uh, you said you'd uh, gotten a sneak preview, obviously, uh, author's privilege of uh, upcoming episodes. I read that Angel Studios was promising that season two will stream in spring 2024. Is they still on course for that? We are. Yeah, we're on course for it. And uh, and Wonderful. it's, uh, man, if if you have watched season one, I think you said you had started season one. Halfway right? done. Yes. Yeah, so I think I like, left them in the basement of Ankle Jelly Manor uh, with the oh, yeah, yeah. coming in. <laughs> it's it's so fun to see like the every episode you can feel get is better than the one before it. Like, I do feel that the pacing part of it improves. Is your, yeah, the pacing improves. The art improves. The animation style improves. Just because we're like the team, they're inventing like a new way of animating. Um, and yeah. so this whole like part CG, part hand painted background idea is just like by episode six you can feel like okay they've got it dialed in. Oh, that's and now marvelous. We're, we're starting season two at that level of animation, and it's just so good. Oh, my goodness. Well, each frame uh, looks like a, a, an illustrated children's book. It looks yeah, like yeah. what you would expect to see if it was all illustrated, all, all, it's all six episodes. And we just released the Art of book. So this beautiful hardback um, with, you know, I mean, I think there were 900 uh, background paintings painted for season one. Wow. Can you imagine how many artists are hard at work on this thing? So we just released this big, beautiful hardback of the, all of the sketches and the, the pre-production and, and all these finished layouts. And it's just this gorgeous, gorgeous. Well, I love that you have so much original art because you can use that in so many other different ways. I mean, I, you probably can't, I don't know how much you can talk about it, but I, I, thinking you could make a card game board game video game because you're already using unreal engine yeah, to animate totally. it it seems like there's a lot of different ways you can go and let kids experience let families experience this world in a bunch of different ways yeah they, there's a roblox game I, which i i did i'm too old to know what roblox was <laughs> but evidently there, it was just this huge thing where all these kids are able to explore and we were able to just kind of import the 3d world that we had made some of the, the elements, you know, and somebody built the stuff out. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of fun, fun potential. I have mixed feelings about the video game thing because I don't want to isolate anyone. Mm. I don't like, yeah. so we're, our, our goal is to, is to only make things that bring people together. And so Roblox was a fun way to do. Yeah. Did I read too, that Billy Boyd, actual Hobbit was going to be a voice in season two. 
Yeah, he already recorded the stuff. He was amazing. Oh, that's so fun. So on a scale yeah. of one to ten, how happy does that make your Lord of the Rings fan heart? Oh, so happy. So happy. He, and he was such a classy dude, too. Like, just a really kind per- He's the He plays the overseer in uh, from Northrop Eaton, who is this villainous character. So it's funny to see. Oh, he's a uh, villain now. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, he's a total villain, and he loved playing the villain. Um, and then Kevin, who played uh, Mr. Oh, what's his name for Pirates of the Caribbean? Mr. Um, I'm blanking. Bother, so but weird. it's the pirate at the beginning who says even a miniature one. He's Podo. He's fantastic. Yeah, he's like the main narrator. So, so he's just awesome. So there's there's a lady, man, I'm blanking on all these names. This is so embarrassing. But the Downton Abbey, the, the head of the kitchen in Downton Abbey, who is actually a neighbor of Kevin, who plays the P- Podo, plays Nergabog, who's this like... Uh, this kind of like old crone uh, strander from book two. So there's like, once you get a few of those actors, it's a lot easier to get more of them. And so it has just been so cool to, to be in the auditions and to hear these, these amazing people um, uh, speaking words that I wrote 20 years ago. Um, Indeed. Kevin McNally, by the way, Kevin McNally. Thank yes. You. Yes. And Sorry, I, Kevin. I recognized his voice, uh, but yes, I mean, he, he's basically, you know, Poto with his history and, and Kevin McNally playing in Pirates of the Caribbean is a yes. lovely seeming little coincidence there. Well, Andrew, uh, I wish we could keep you longer, but as we draw to a close, I'm curious if we can get some big old uh, prophetic spoilers from you. You mentioned that the publisher was going to do uh, books expanding on the wing for the universe. So maybe a bit of a slip there. Any other books, titles, release dates, you know, uh, spoiler endings yeah, yeah. that you can give away for the Wing Feather Saga books where it all began? Sure. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I'm allowed to talk about it, but I'm just going to do it anyway. We have a, a, a picture book. So The Prince of Yorsha Dune is a story that is in Wing Feather Tales um, that I wrote uh, about a kid named Safiki who lives in, um, in the Dune lands. And uh, so that we're putting out a really fun, like, uh, picture book. You know, like uh, not board book quite, but but a, a, for children storybook uh, of that, and then there's a graphic novel of book one that's that's being kicked around right now, which is really fun. And then I am working on another book, which is not a wing feather book, a standalone young adult uh, adventure story um, that is with another publisher. Because um, I do want to write other stuff, you know, I, I would love to write a mystery one day. I'd, there's plenty of plenty of other things that I'm working on, but there's I'm very excited about this this new young adult book that's going to come out. Um, but I've got to write it first, so it may be a while. Okay, so no exact release timings to announce now, but just know that there is uh, more underway uh, for the world of Air We Are. And I would I would say sorry to interject, but like the 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 Angel Studios kind of shining aisle machine, you know, like. When you go to the to the store for the animated series, man, they are just constantly cranking out really cool stuff. Like mm-hmm. the thing I'm probably that we just released a nugget plushie toy. <laughs> so I've been getting all these pictures of little girls like curled up in their bed, squeezing nugget. Um, they are going to they're not going to be happy in season two. But uh, the, if, if you know what I mean, if you've read the books and then we have action figures. Like they're like those are coming oh, la- later this year. There's like this really cool collector set of action figures, which my wife is not going to be happy until we go to Target and see action on the shelf. So I don't know that they'll be in Target. They'll be in 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 the. But Toys R Us now. is making a comeback supposedly. So hey, maybe hey, uh, we'll see what we can do. Another but right now, thing to come back. Who knows? Yeah. So follow all of that at uh, Angel Studios, the Angel Studios store as well. We'll have that link in the show notes. And then, uh, Andrew, any other links uh, you want to toss out there uh, for folks uh, to follow, uh, not just your world building here for the world of air we are, but your uh, music career as well? Yeah, if you just go to andrew-peterson.com, you can go to the rabbit room, to my music stuff, and the books. All right, then. Well, thank you so much for coming. Uh, Best of blessings to you. Uh, Thanks for just staying the course. Uh, Thanks for being faithful with the gifts that God has given you. And we uh, look forward to much uh, to see in here uh, from your creative work in the future. Thank you so much, you guys. And Godspeed. Stephen, it really resonated with me how Andrew talked about having an insatiable hunger for a certain kind of story. And it was fun to find uh, stories in common that I had with him when, from when we were both uh, middle school age, like the Dragonlance books, which... Uh, you know, I haven't read since then, but I'm I'm glad that they're still making those. It's it's really fun to see those on on shelves now. Uh, but it's also great to find all these new stories that I never would have known about. And um, I also love how he said that that the darkness is an errand boy for the light because ultimately 
this is the universe God has created and controls. Everything is held together by his powerful word. And so, you know, the, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Just some scriptural truth there that even the darkest story will point to the light if it is written with a faithful uh, worldview, faithful to reality. <laughs> and so we, we don't have to necessarily eschew these kinds of stories. We, we have to look and see how the light shines through because in reality, it, it always does. That's exactly the kind of stuff uh, that we want to explore at Lorehaven. And I think it's a particularly timely topic when we're exiting the darker season of October uh, for one reason or another. Uh, people seem to acknowledge the darkness a little bit more. Some seem to celebrate it. But I think that makes a fantastic occasion grounded in church history for Christians to come along uh, and not just seem to fear the darkness, but to subvert the darkness to subvert the darkness with the light. And uh, we've appreciated having several episodes uh, over the past month or so about the purpose of noble dark horror uh, and how, for example, the devil may still be operating with overtly dark activities uh, that uh, Christians can still subvert uh, because we have on our side uh, the light, uh, the light that has come into the world. And we never ought to act as if he is somehow weaker than the darkness because he absolutely is not. That's the stuff that we uh, explore at Lorehaven. So let's go over to our mission update. I already mentioned earlier in the sponsor segment that you can subscribe free to get updates at lorehaven.com. We have new reviews of the best Christian-made fantastical novels every Friday, or almost every Friday, uh, and articles as well, uh, any news we get our hands on, and of course, the new podcast episodes uh, every Tuesday, with the exception of a couple holiday breaks uh, around, around uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas Day. But you can get notified about those by subscribing free to email updates at lorehaven.com slash subscribe. I mentioned that November book quest for Nadine Brandis's novel Fox in the Lorehaven Guild. Uh, definitely get in on that one. Uh, that book, uh, unlike uh, Koenig's Fire, is available now uh, for purchase. So you can still get that. It's, uh, it's in print. Uh, recent article, too. Don't miss uh, Jenneth Dick's article, Disney Might Finally Learn Why It's Failing. I think there's a Disney movie coming out later. Uh, something about a, a, a naughty patriarchalist king uh, who wants to take away everybody's fun. Uh, and candy. At least that's the impression I get. Uh, maybe you'll go see it. Maybe it's better than that. But Jenneth is more optimistic about Disney while still acknowledging uh, some of the issues that have been going on with this company uh, that are really making all of its films turn into flops. And I might just add uh, that uh, Jenneth clearly is extremely powerful and OP uh, because <laughs> very soon after we published this article, it seems that the Walt Disney Corporation uh, itself was so impressed and convicted by Jenneth's uh, challenge uh, that within days they announced in so many words that the seven dwarves are back, baby. Uh, and that they're short fellows with beards and instead of uh, diverse uh, female uh, adults in colorful the community forestry theater attire. Reject. Yeah. The community theater uh, accepts. I, I think uh, <laughs> let's be fair to them. They, they look like they do fine in community theater, but Disney pretended that that photo didn't uh, get leaked at all uh, from the London tablet or whatever it is. And then they just put out a photo of live action snow white surrounded by the seven uh, PS4 dwarves. So bravo, bravo. Uh, we love having Jenneth on board. We are very glad that she got that done. Uh, they're going to delay the Snow White movie so they can basically <laughs> reshoot it on uh, the sly. Uh, and I cannot imagine the expense for that. So hopefully they turn out better. I want to give them a path toward winning, but uh, perhaps maybe not so many live action remakes in the first place would be nice. Anyway, we got that link in our show notes along with uh, Jenneth's article uh, that uh, moved uh, the impossible Disney mountain. Of course, I'm being a little sarcastic there. Uh, we also have a couple of reviews uh, in the uh, Lorehaven website. Uh, past reviews, Steal Fire from the Gods by Clint Hall on October the 27th. And then, of course, uh, we just had a review out for the book uh, we just mentioned from Andrew Peterson. We got an early copy for A Ranger's Guide to Glipwood Forest. And we got some new reviews coming up, including some seasonally appropriate reviews. Just stay tuned at lorehaven.com to see what we've read and what we recommend. I think we should have Jenneth write some articles about Star Wars and hopefully some other shakeups could happen at Disney uh, that would maybe fix that. But I know Jenneth is a fan of Ahsoka. I've been a fan of The Mandalorian. It's not all bad, but it could be a lot, lot better. Anyway. Let's go to our comm station, though, now for some comments about episode 185, which was what are the scariest ghost stories in the Bible? And listener and fantasy novelist Catherine Jones Payne remarked on this episode and said, quote, 
Interesting detail I learned the other day about the Witch of Indoor passage. The Septuagint translates witch medium as ventriloquist, taking the view that the witch faked the whole thing, while other Second Temple sources suggest that the writers believed it really was Samuel. So this debate has been going on for a very, very long time. End quote. Yeah, that I, I imagine so. That doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, just looking at it for this episode, I thought, how are we ever going to decide, Stephen, whether this really was Samuel or wasn't? I mean, the witch seemed convinced of it, but that's about as far as you can go. Is it she seemed genuinely terrified? So, what you know, there, there's a lot of interpretations you could take from that, uh, but it it really did seem like a supernatural encounter one way or the other. It didn't seem like she was faking this appearance, whatever that appearance really was. Yeah, as the guy who still favors a naturalistic explanation for those infamous Nephilim of Genesis 6, and if you think I'm going to open that topic up in this episode, you're sadly mistaken. I I do view the supernatural explanation here. Uh, It it is valid that the Septuagint translators uh, seem to imply that they thought the witch or medium, whomever, faked it all. Uh, But the narrative very clearly says otherwise. Just a plain reading says otherwise. Samuel said this. He made the prediction. Like, what, was she actually... Uh, the the secret source behind all of that. Well, in that case, how did it come true? In which case, you're still dealing with the supernatural explanation. I favor the narrative of scripture's plain reading over clearly an ancient commentary on it. Commentaries are valuable, but they're not infallible. Yeah, that's a good point. That the meaning of that encounter was that Samuel actually did give a prophecy, but it was not a good one for Saul. So if it was just a demon tricking the witch and Saul, then I would assume it'd be a better prophecy than what Saul got. So yeah, yeah, I, I think I'm leaning now towards it really was Samuel. How that happened. I, I don't know. That's, that's kind of the mysterious part. Also holographic technology was unknown in the BC <laughs> era. It's unknown today. Uh, we got another com station note from Samuel, this time Samuel Robinson. I think he's alive either way. That's good. That's good. We favor this. And he commented on episode 186, does the devil deceive people into real witchcraft? And Samuel says, quote, I think Satan is doing his best work through those in the church claiming to follow Christ, yet supporting or pushing things that are entirely anti-Christian, end quote. Oh man, boy, we we could have a whole episode on this. Um, it's the, the Akins in the camp, the AC... H-A-N, you know, the, the, the Achan who was uh, secretly hiding idols in his tent uh, among the Israelites. And, you know, we're reading through the Old Testament with our big girls right now, and this is always a problem that God's people hanging onto idols, which we know an idol is nothing, but at the same time, idols are dedicated to demons, and it seems demons inhabit them, they're attracted to them, they, they follow them somehow. You know, it's interesting, Stephen, even at the end of Deuteronomy, when they're about to enter the land, this is what we most recently read in my family, Moses gives them predictions or prophecies about how they are going to turn away and follow idols and then be invaded or be exiled. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, a lot of what happened seems to be playing out in the modern day, and it's played out through Israel's very long and very often very tragic history. But this is not a new thing. This is not a new struggle for all people and God's people, even especially. And yes, there there is something particularly bad about idols invading the church. People that that, that do follow Christ or claim to, turning aside to to myths, and we we don't mean fantasy novels. We mean actual myths that are either popular now or have been traditional myths. And you know, Stephen, just one, one example of this I was thinking of recently, and I've I've kind of mentioned this before. Just take this whole idea of meditation. Scripture says for us to meditate, right? But what do we? What does that mean? It means we fill ourselves with God's word. Modern meditation is you empty yourself. Well, obviously that's very different. But why is it dangerous? Because Jesus talked about an empty house swept clean being the target of demons. Uh, so you know, as as we've talked about in this episode, real witchcraft. Like there are a lot of modern ways that that witchcraft comes into the church. And we have to be on guard about that because Jesus told us to be on guard. 
I have been infamously known for calling this at times Christian white magic. And that is an issue. And I would agree with Samuel that that is uh, one of the ways that Satan does his best work, which of course we understand is his worst work. Uh, at the same time, uh, I appreciate Marion's emphasis in this episode, uh, which is not so much about problems going on among Christians within the four walls of the church or a parachurch organization, but what's going on in the wider world, uh, which is, I would say, also Satan's worst work. These are people who've often not darkened the doors of a church ever. Uh, and there's so many more people like that as our culture becomes more and more distant from the last vestiges of a Judeo-Christian worldview. And although I want to be on guard against this stuff sneaking into the church, I also want to be aware that there are other ways that Satan operates. Uh, Satan, as I've said in that episode, uh, knows how to walk and chew gum at the same time. He's got multiple different campaigns going on at once. He is a chronic multitasker. It's all he has to do, the old wily devil. So let's not get too focused on how he's infiltrating the churches. And then hopefully if we get a more healthy church environment, which I understand, you know, calls for triage. Uh, if your own local church is struggling with stuff like this, uh, but one of the main purposes of getting that stuff cleaned out of there is so that you can then be available to people who have never been inside churches and maybe don't, we, maybe we don't even know how good we've got it. You know, there may be some nasty little devotional that's running around uh, purporting to be from automatic writing. And maybe some folks are, are into that kind of thing. And maybe for them, you know, Holy Spirit is counteracting the worst excesses of that. And that's still bad. And I would want to point out, you know, bad Christian resources that are compromising with that stuff. But there is worse stuff out there, too. And I think Marion is picking up on a lot of that. People who don't even have a clue uh, what the Bible teaches, don't even have a clue about the wonderful love and truth and holiness of Jesus Christ. And they're seeking for meaning and they're finding it in ways that are far more toxic uh, than a bad book or, or a bad teaching that's found inside your local church or inside the Christian community. So when possible, uh, let's be on our guard against both. Well, to you, our listener, we would love to hear from you about this episode with Andrew Peterson. So here's some questions. How did your own parents handle scary stuff in fantasy stories? If you're a parent now, how do you discuss darker themes with your kids? And what darker stories have helped drive you towards the gospel's light? Send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com. You can see these questions in the episode notes or on our episode page. Go to lorehaven.com or comment anywhere you see us on social media. Next on Fantastical Truth. Well, speaking of the darkness out there, and speaking of uh, Disney and all that sort of thing, last month saw the culturally conservative platform The Daily Wire launching a new streaming service, and it offers dozens of television shows for children under the label Bent Key. <laughs> Interestingly enough, two Fantastical Truth guests were involved with creating these shows. Yet you, like us, may wonder... Whether a company that's known mainly for its political positions can do this well, this kind of cultural creation, shouldn't faithful and excellent Christian creators ignore or suppress this kind of punditry in order to make the best fantastical stories? Zach and I will get into that in our next episode. Meanwhile, you may be a wing feather fan. You may have questions about these dark creatures. Uh, you may enjoy the whimsy. You may enjoy the songs, uh, all of that good stuff. I think it's wonderful to keep in mind that all of that comes and can only come from a biblical Christian worldview. Uh, and now that we're moving toward Thanksgiving, uh, I'm just more and more grateful that we have these kinds of stories, that these kinds of stories take off, uh, and that they show a wonderful and biblical balance between the darkness that is real in our world that demands confrontation, but also the light and wonder and hope. And I hope that you, especially if you're a parent, uh, will get a hold of this hope and the darkness and teach both to your children in a biblical context. And that, more importantly, even you would apply these lessons to your own life as we continue to seek and find Christ's fantastical truth. <laughs>